Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I can, I can pop a, a sheet over me in the laptop if it's, it's echoing. <laughs> I mean, only, only a little bit. It, it, is, it is very slightly echoey. But I would... Let me, I'll, I'll grab a sheet, it's really no problem. Okay. It should, it should dampen it, one sec. Cool, is that any better? That is actually quite a lot better, surprisingly. I didn't think that would work. I'm very impressed. Yeah, yeah as long as Colour doesn't come in and see me kind of living like a parrot under this duvet. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The Cinematic Podcast. Like what is, by some estimates, an entire quarter of the world's population of 7 billion, I am currently on lockdown. I am living almost entirely within the confines of my, my fairly small East London flat, along with my, my beloved Agnes. You know, it's... It's a bit weird not being able to go out, except to occasionally pop to a shop and buy slightly too much junk food. But it's a fairly common experience right now. It's probably something you're going through your own version of, although maybe you have a garden, you lucky bugger, in which case I can only be envious of you. But one minor upside to the uh, collapse of civilization and the global economy as we know it is that it means that people who I'd very much like to have got back on the podcast before now suddenly find themselves with a bit more availability than they perhaps had before. So I thought this would be an excellent opportunity to catch up with my former co-host, Stephanie Boland, who since leaving the New Statesman has been the digital editor of Prospect magazine, and ask her how the lockdown is working out for her. Yeah, by and large, I'm okay. I mean, here in my flat with my partner and Netflix and all the food deliveries that London has to offer does not feel like the worst way of weathering this crisis. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, pretty similar, really. It's nice to spend some time indoors, really. <laughs> we just got, we, we, we got a box of... Uh, there is a hipster donut place that is doing deliveries of donuts alongside milk, bread, eggs and veg boxes, which kind of feels like... It's difficult to feel too much like it's the end of the world when you can get all your groceries and some posh donuts delivered to you by some hipsters on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. This is the strangeness of the pandemic, isn't it? That it's so awful and the reports already coming out from London hospitals and what people on the front line of the NHS are seeing is so distressing. But for me personally, as somebody with, you know, quite a nice stable job and another half I get along with and no kids, I should say, it's very pleasant here at home. 
and doesn't make you feel very lucky <laughs> if that's your situation it's not everyone's it's a welcome break from the from the, from the commute really it's a bit weird because I've been so so I went freelance at the end of January so firstly I am not currently sure how stuffed I am going to be financially by the whole thing I think as freelancers go, I'm in a reasonably good situation, but nonetheless, it's a little bit, could could everything just suddenly collapse? And secondly, I was slightly ahead of the curve. I've been kind of like working from home and going slowly weird on my own for a couple of months anyway. So really, I've just been getting the sort of practice in and I've been doing all this normal stuff like, you know, wondering what would happen if I stopped shaving one half of my face. (laughs) <laughs> or, or think, wondering whether it would actually be a really good time to, to reorganise my, my bookshelves and sort of noting all the jobs that need doing around the house without, without actually doing any of them. So really, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm quite in practice at this. So it's, it's almost sort of surprised me at how stressful it's been, <laughs> suddenly feeling like I can't go out, given that not, not that much has really changed. I was going to ask about this because we're recording this Perhaps by the time it comes out, we'll know a bit more on this, but we were recording it when the support for self-employed people has not really been announced yet. So we don't know what's coming there in terms of freelancers. And like you say, journalists definitely aren't in the worst position when it comes to that. But I know a lot of people will be very worried about that. So that's one half of it. But also so much of what you specifically do and what City Metric is about is getting out into the city, walking around, transport, infrastructure, how people live their lives. It must be quite surreal to have that as a specialism at a time when certainly for me, London is condensed into essentially living in a village, you know, walking to our local shops, to the park, back home. That's my London now. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of change your, your relationship with the city, doesn't it? Because uh, something I've been thinking about a lot is I kind of think like, you know, if you're a sort of a city person, you you sort of live outside, like not in terms of like literally outside, but like a lot of your life takes place outside your home. You know, you go to the pub and socialise, you go meet friends or you go for a run or whatever it is, because you're not likely to have like a big garden or loads and loads of spare rooms, even if, you know, I'm, I'm quite lucky to have a reasonably pleasant, decent-sized one-bed flat, but still, it's only a couple of rooms. It's a little bit claustrophobic. So much of my, my sort of daily life generally has, has taken place outside this place, and that's that's sort of weird, because suddenly you're just, like, living in this sort of tiny, tiny space, and all the sort of reasons you, you moved to a city in the first place don't don't really apply. It's so true, isn't it? And our flat's not very small for London, but you think of cities like Tokyo or even New York, where flats are even smaller than your average London one bed, you know, where you might not have even used the oven very much in your flat before, or, you know, you really are just going back there to sleep for some people in some cities, and suddenly this is your your whole environment. It is quite odd. (laughs) Yeah, something I am sort of enjoying about it is so so massively stocked up on on provisions. Like not in the kind of like actually we should probably talk about the stockpiling thing in a second. But like for the for the first time, I basically have a full fridge and full supplies cupboards because although we can we can get out and about at the moment, you don't know like you know it could be that one day we wake up, one of us is a bit symptomatic and we we have to self isolate and can't leave the house for a week. So you know we've got a week's worth of, of food for two people just in case. Firstly, that's quite nice. But secondly, it sort of brought home the fact that I have slightly been living 
hand to mouth in this and just sort of like not thinking ahead about what I might need to eat this week. It's just like, oh, I'll just grab a sandwich or I'll just get something on my way home or something. And it's there's something quite homely about things. Oh, look, I have a full fruit bowl or some bread in the cupboard or whatever. Now I say it out loud and with your your, your lengthy silence, I'm slightly worried. This is actually more about me living like a, a, <laughs> a teenager or, or some kind of wild animal rather than a, a broader social phenomenon. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm not really sure how representative we are because we're both quite big cooks and I've been a vegetarian for 10 years and so my diet kind of looks like stockpiling anyway in that at any moment there is a lot of tin tomato and dried beans in my flat regardless of whether or not we're in a global pandemic but it is something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of the UK and how people in the UK eat because I don't think our way of teaching people to cook in schools is necessarily the best. We know that people don't learn from their parents the way they used to. So actually, a lot of people do have quite a quick turnaround in terms of either buying ready-made meals, buying fast food, or buying things that you know you're not creating it from the raw ingredients. You might get a packet of pasta and a packet of sauce. And some of those things lend themselves to a longer time lockdown indoors, and some of them really don't. I think it must be a big challenge for a lot of people to transition from being able to get cheap, easy, calorific food readily prepared to having to go, OK, what does two weeks of feeding my family actually look like? Yeah, I mean, what do you think of the whole stockpiling thing? Do you think there was, I'm just curious, do you think there was panic buying or do you think there's something more, more subtle going on there? I mean, I'm sure there were some people panic buying and there were people being selfish. There were enough reports of that. But I think on the whole, what's happened is supply chains have hit a situation they weren't expecting to, right? And we saw this very early on just with the boots outside Charing Cross Station, which used to be my boots on the way into work when I when I still used to go to work in the office. Oh, great days. Um, and very, very early on, you know, mid to late February, I saw that they ran out of ibuprofen. And what's interesting about that is it always has a cap of two packets per person anyway. And I think what you see from that example and what we've subsequently seen from people analysing what's happened to the supply chain is you don't need people going in and buying, you know, 50 loo rolls to wipe out a shop of loo rolls. If everyone buys one extra, that will do it. Because if you're a supermarket, you're not storing thousands of rolls of toilet paper in the back it would make no sense for you to do that and so while obviously you do hear these horrible stories of people shoving past pensioners to grab the last tin of beans i suspect what we've seen more of and what hopefully means it will settle down over the course of this week is um supermarkets having to change yeah i mean i think on the on the people shoving past pensioners thing it is worth remembering that you know most pensioners would push you in front of a bus to get to that tin of beans so we oh, shouldn't John, be too, you're so cynical we shouldn't be we shouldn't be too sympathetic but yeah no i do think there is an interesting thing around the just-in-time economy like a lot of these supermarkets have very sophisticated algorithms that tell them this is exactly how much you will sell in the average week of each of these products so if everyone is just like not going out and buying loads and loads of store cupboard stuff but just thinking i will buy a little bit more just in case and i'm going to be eating from home slightly more normal than usual all those things kind of add up and those kind of just just in time supply chains are overwhelmed because the, the algorithms don't take account of that. I find that quite interesting. And you see the same thing with food deliveries from shops. I mean, is it 
very funny that Ocado ran out of slots so quickly compared to some of the maybe less upmarket retailers. Yes, absolutely. But you're also going from still a minority of people doing all of their shopping online to almost everyone in the country having to do a lot more of their shopping online. And obviously, it's going to take retailers time to catch up with that. Hopefully, you know, things start to change, hire more delivery drivers. I don't know what the provision's like on vans, but bring a bit extra capacity there. Sorry, I sound like I'm now running a, a donut delivery service or something. But <laughs> you, should, you should. It's a big, it's a big, it's, it's, it's a lucrative. Whole, yeah, it's a whole big thing at the moment. <laughs> so have you, have you been out at all? Have you left, have you left your home? I have. So I did a week's lockdown because I had a bit of a fever. And then I've been, you know, going for my one government sanctioned walk or run a day. That's pretty much it. How are things looking at your, your end of town? It's quite busy. So we live between Lewisham and Blackheath, which if you're not a Londoner, Blackheath is quite a posh enclave. You sort of don't feel like you're in London once you're in it. And there have been a lot of people out on the heath there or just walking around. Lewisham is quite busy as well in the, the town centre. I don't know. Whereabouts are you now? Bethnal Green. So I'm, I'm right by railway junction. So that's nice. I have lots of trains to watch. The trains that I've been obsessively counting the number of passengers I can see on every London Overground train that passes me, and it's generally like tiny. Did you see the City Mapper Mobility Index? Oh, yeah, where they're measuring how many people are actually still moving around in different cities, yeah. Yeah, so because people all over the world use the City Mapper app to plan their journeys, they've got data on at least a number of people who have searched for routes recently and you can really see it drop over the past few weeks so I know a couple of weeks ago Milan was already on three percent of its usual capacity and I think London is now on something like 12 percent of the usual number of searches they get it's quite funny if you're the kind of person who listens to the City Metric podcast however you might name or identify that person you might enjoy having a look at it yeah no so I'm, I'm I've got it up right now two weeks ago week ending Sunday 15th of March London was ranked to sort of 83% of the city was moving compared to 9% in Milan, 16% in Rome, and then generally sort of numbers around 50% in much of the world. If you kind of look at today, London is now down to 12%, and those Italian cities are now single figures. Most places are single figures, actually, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah I think it's Paris, really Boston, Lyon, Monaco, all, um, all kind of under 10%. So you can see how people's experience of those cities has really dropped so rapidly. I don't know if you saw that tweet going, the people I really feel sorry for here are the psychogeographers. Yeah. I don't feel sorry for psychogeographers. I think they should be <laughs> lined up and, and shot, trying to make something pretentious out of just a nice long walk. St. Petersburg is up at 69%, so that's so they're, they're nice. a great time. Yeah, I only said that so you'd say nice, obviously. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, I actually, I went on a fairly long, I am also in the middle of some, some fairly unpleasant dental work at the moment. And my dentist is the one right opposite the New Statesman office. So I've been a couple of times, I've had to basically do my old commute. That takes me from the East End through the city of London. And it's kind of, it's difficult to work out from that route how strange it is, because the city of London is often quite dead on a Sunday afternoon, say. So it feels kind of more like that than like, you know, 28 days later. I should at some point use my, my, my government-sanctioned exercise to actually go somewhere that's normally a bit busier and kind of get a real sense of, of how weird it is out there, I think. Yeah, it'd be awful, because then you might do something pretentious about a long walk and you'll have to row back your condemnation of the psychogeographers in a hurry. Doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> Please mind the gap between the train 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So how do you think the government is, is doing with this whole mess? Are they, are they kind of like uh, living up to the challenge? It's been interesting, hasn't it? I was just reading about Boris Johnson's approval ratings, which seem quite good. The majority of people do think he's handling it quite well. I mean, I think the comms have have really been an an issue. I wanted to ask you, actually, what you thought of this slogan, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, because it does feel like implementing that and getting a little bit more aggressive on comms over the last few days has helped, but it's, it's not been horribly clear over the past couple of weeks, has it? I think it's been remarkably unclear. Okay, I mean, the first thing to say about that slogan particularly is I think keep calm and carry on people have a lot to answer for. And just like trying to force everything into that format. I think the government's communication strategy has been absolutely bloody abysmal. Like, they've still been kind of leaking like possible plans out through the normal kind of like favoured journalists who then tweet them 36 hours before their sort of policy as a sort of balloon flying exercise and so firstly you're only communicating with the the tiny minority of the population who are on twitter slash incredibly politically engaged anyway and secondly you're giving people information that may soon turn out to be to be wrong and I just kind of think that they're, they're trying to manage this pandemic like they try to manage the communications around Brexit. And that was bad enough with, you know, international treaty negotiations. It seems actively dangerous at a point where, like, people are going to die because they get the wrong message from the government. I mean, what do you think? Do you think journalists are handling those leaks badly? Because that's something I've been thinking about a lot. At Prospect, we've dropped our paywall and I'm doing a lot of stuff around search engine optimization so people can hopefully find the most useful stories. And I've been struck by a real split between what people are putting into search engines that they want to know the answer to, which is quite mundane things. If my partner's got the kids this week, how do we do the handover for the weekend? you know, which shop should I be going to at what time? And the kind of stories that are being written up, which, like you say, are being written up as if they're Westminster stories rather than national public health stories. Is there a problem with the press here as well? 
there's an incentive problem, isn't there? Like the journalists who have the best relationship with senior ministers, government advisors, and spokespeople, and so on, tend to be the sort of very senior lobby reporters, like the BBC's political editor or the ITV's political editor, or like the, someone from the Telegraph or something. I, all those guys have kind of come up through reporting on effectively parliamentary soap opera. They don't necessarily have any kind of like knowledge of, of the science of, of a pandemic or epidemiology or anything, which you would ideally want. But, you know, obviously these guys, it is not necessarily in their own personal interest to start, turn around and go, well, I am not qualified to do this. You should get the science correspondent to do this instead. So so they're not they're not going to do that. I don't necessarily blame the individuals who are like still excitedly tweeting. Oh, I've just been told this by a senior advisor, because from their own sort of limited point of view like that is probably the thing that will advance their interests the most but it's not necessarily what the world at large me- needs so I kind of wonder if there should be some more conversations going on in kind of media management offices. Yeah it's all, there's a sort of bigger problem I think in UK journalism which relates to that which is that making things as comprehensible as possible is not what success in journalism looks like so it is for obvious reasons much more valued within a media organisation if you're the person bringing in big scoops and big news lines and writing the box out on the news story that's going to talk people through what they need to know about a complex evolving situation is not a high profile role. Those types of things are not as glamour and as exciting because they don't add to the prestige of the paper amongst the right people in the same way. I think a really good example of that this week has been the serological tests, so the antibody tests that are being developed. And I know, I want to say her name is Sarah Peacock or Shara Peacock from Public Health England, was saying, you know, they should be here within a few days. And there's been a real need to introduce maybe a little bit of scepticism about that, you know, this idea that within a couple of days we'll all be able to order them off Amazon and see if we've had coronavirus or not. And there are a lot of scientists who are going, look, there's going to be question marks around this. We really need to do more testing. Are they really going to be on Amazon or are you going to give them to NHS workers first? But it's not, you know, a great bit of journalism to sit down and go, look, here's who's critical about it. Here's what might happen. Here's the different sources and voices saying this. So. Yeah, yeah, just a general moan about the industry happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does just feel like another sort of aspect of, of the many, many ways in which the world was not set up for this crisis. And like, this is the media specific one. But there's all sorts of stuff going on. Like, if you think about how all the stuff we've been told for 40 years about how what you really need is a flexible labour market. And to have that, you kind of need to put a load as much of the sort of employment risk onto the individual take it off the corporation as, as as much as you possibly can and then we get to a situation like this and suddenly it's like oh wow we've now got five million self-employed people who might not be able to eat by the end of next week because we no longer have the structures to kind of like channel money to them into an emergency and guess what it turns out the 94 pounds a week you get on universal credit is not actually enough to live on and so it kind of feels like a lot of these assumptions we've been living under for a very long time are now being now being questioned for the first time no, it's true. And I know there's been good analysis by Stephen about that on the New Statesman website, you know, how flexor security, as they call it, very flexible work, but with the uh, the state there ready to support you as the other half of that bargain has um, has not really been put in place. I mean, I guess there is, and this isn't sympathy for the government, because like you, I'm 
very critical of the handling of it. But I think there is a difficulty for anyone who's involved in this, whether it's on a business level or in the health service or working on supply chains to know what the end game is going to be. And we don't really know what the end of this looks like yet. I can see the difficulty if you are going, well, I don't know what to do for my employees because I don't know whether I need to weather 12 weeks of a storm or two years of a storm. Yeah, quite. I mean, like a lot of I, I, don't, I don't want to start defending the terrible employers who are now like just telling their staff to piss off and come back with the whole thing, because I think that's a, a, a abysmal way of treating people. But I can see how like there is a difference between like, oh, well, we can pay you not to work for two weeks and we can pay you not to work indefinitely could be six months or a year and those are obviously incredibly different prospects and there'll be a lot of businesses that could easily manage the first one but couldn't sort of manage that open-ended commitment without going under and this is it i mean there's a big difference between a big business doing immediate mass layoffs which like you say is abhorrent and smes that go i genuinely don't know for how long i'll continue to be able to pay myself and it's all very up in the air at the moment. I mean, workhouses is what I'm expecting. We're going to have government-sanctioned workhouses, everyone two metres apart, as much gruel as you want. Why do you like this, John? What happened? I was bullied a lot as a child. Oh, OK. <laughs> I'll tell you, actually, one, one business which I'm, I'm surprisingly impressed by, and this is not something I was expecting to say, is how my, my, my gym is handling the situation. Because obviously all the gyms have closed... And they, the, the, the company sent around an email saying, you know, if you want to cancel your membership at this point, we understand. But please, if, if you can help support us, we will give you more some perks when, when we open up again and offering the option of like continuing to pay half the rate or the full fee. But kind of leaving it up to the sort of user and sort of, you know, appealing to their sort of better nature to kind of keep supporting a business that they can't use the next couple of weeks, which I thought was quite a nice, a nice way of doing it, actually. Yeah, I've been really annoyed with my gym because my um, trainer I know though is not only sending daily workouts but also just photos of himself working out in the park. So I've had to mute it. <laughs> why, know, is, and, why is this person not on Instagram like the rest of the gym weirdos? I right. I find the whole thing very confusing. I think he's put me on a WhatsApp broadcast list. Bless him, he's very sweet, but I have had to mute it. But no, when we bought some vouchers the other week for a local restaurant that we probably would go to during this period of time if we weren't in lockdown if you have a hairdresser you regularly go to and they do vouchers it's quite a nice thing to do to sort of invest forward so that they've got a little bit of income coming in in the meantime but again you know not an option for everyone yeah. I'm very lucky to be able to do that but it sounds like there are businesses handling it it well and there's a lot of people who are changing their business very rapidly in a way that's just so impressive i know um like fruit sellers from markets who have started doing veg box schemes and then doing free deliveries to people who need that or who are vulnerable and isolating so there is a lot of positivity around how do you think this this whole thing might change the world do you think it will or do you think like in however many months we just go back to normal i don't know when you look at what happened after the spanish flu it's quite hard to tell because you also had the World end of the First World War One. Yeah. I think what's been really interesting is seeing how places that dealt with SARS have been so much better prepared to deal with this pandemic. And so the one thing I'm really hopeful for in terms of how we go forward afterwards is just realising that pandemics happen, you know, Poor bloody Bill Gates has been doing TED Talks about it for years. And the preparedness really needs to change after this. 
I don't know. How about you? Do you think we're just going to fist bump each other forever? I don't know. I mean, I think I find it really interesting to speculate. It will change some things. I think it is. It might change attitudes to, to, to work. Like, you know, if people are now sort of home working as, and, you know, if stuff is still getting done. Maybe maybe that will be made an option for more people in the future. Or maybe, like, nothing will get done for a lot of companies and they'll be even more sort of presentee-ish about it than they've ever been before. But I, also, I, I guess the thing I'm most interested in is what this does to our politics in that it kind of feels like stuff that we were being told was, was impossible a few weeks ago is now happening incredibly quickly. Like, something that happened, obviously, the city metric specific interest is, like, on Monday this week, the government basically just ended rail franchising. It's not that like we've now got a nationalised rail network again, but it looks like for the foreseeable future, most of Britain's privatised railway network will be managed on the same kind of basis as something like the London Overground, where it is it is run by a private company, but it's done on a sort of basic management contract. So, so I mean, the, the key difference is instead of like the government getting a share of, of the takings, the company is just kind of paid a set fee to deliver a set service. That just gives a slightly different attitude to, to how we run things, I think. So that's, that's all changed. I think attitudes towards the welfare system or the NHS may, may change during the course of this because suddenly it turns out that, that we need these things a lot more than, than certain senior Conservative politicians may have been thinking we did. And, and also, I guess, just like... I mean, do you remember it's only a few weeks ago that we had those kind of... We were talking about skilled and unskilled workers in terms of immigration... And now it turns out that a lot of the people whose society really needs to function are not those incredibly well-paid consultants or bankers or whatever. They are the people who are stocking supermarkets or cleaning the streets or like delivering packages or whatever. Those are actually the people that the economy is going to fall apart without. So I guess this could impact how we think about politics and the economy a little bit if we're if we're very very lucky yeah i was talking to dr charlotte riley the historian the other day who's from the fence and she was saying there's a whole load of fruit near her her hometown that they don't have people to pick and those low-skilled high-value jobs are going to have to be readdressed in pretty short order i mean i suppose it does come back to what the end of this looks like though doesn't it if it's in 18 months and the Conservative government have spent a huge amount of money on welfare and funding rent and helping self-employed people. There's always the um, the chance it swings towards austerity afterwards. All a little bit unclear at present. Baby boom is one thing I'm fairly sure is going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it sort of partly depends on how long... I mean, my, my instinct based on absolutely nothing, and I'm wrong about everything, so please disregard everything I'm about to say. But my, my, my instinct is that probably we don't stay in lockdown all year. I just don't see how that works. I think the economy collapses. I think people start going mad. I don't think anybody wants that. But I can sort of see a series of sort of measures that kind of become more or less tight with kind of the flow of of the numbers and like you know as as the weather gets warmer and immunity spreads a bit maybe maybe the pandemic does die back a bit but then comes back in october you know we just we, we don't know but i kind of can't imagine please god don't keep me locked up in this flat for the whole of this year <laughs> i didn't buy a big enough flat i didn't buy a flat for garden i will go mad but maybe that's it maybe it'll be the first warm weekend when we're allowed back out when you can date the baby boom from 
But um, yeah, I think it'll be a lot of first children being born. I think people who have been in lockdown with a child might not be <laughs> super eager to increase their family size immediately after this period of time. But we'll see, I suppose. It could go, it could go the other way. I mean, there were reports from Wuhan in China that like once the lockdown ended, an unusually high number of couples filed for divorce. Yeah, my partner told me about this and I'm trying not to read too much into the fact that he told me. Well, um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Thank um, you. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for, for returning to Skylines during this in a moment of national crisis. Like, you know that, you know, King George VI and, the Queen, and uh, Queen Elizabeth refused to leave London during the Blitz. So it's like it's nice to know that you are you are showing your support for the country in a similar way. Yeah. Under my bed sheet in my kitchen. I should say I, I, I work at Prospect magazine now and we are doing some great reporting, although I'm sure you're all up to your eyeballs in the fantastic content at the New Statesman. So I won't need the second news source to come on. But just in case my boss is listening, you can find us online. <laughs> OK, well, yeah, I mean, you, none of you are doing anything at home anyway. are you? You're just kind of sitting around being bored out of your mind like the rest of us. So why not? Why not go and read some some excellent articles on Prospect or the New Statesman? been listening to skylines the podcast from city metric the new statesman city site it was presented and recorded by me john anich and produced by nick hilton you can find skylines every two weeks on itunes acast or whatever other app you use to get your your podcast and while you're there why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here it you know it really helps people discover the show and i'm a megalomaniac so the more people i can get listening to this the better really we'll see you in two weeks thanks for listening Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.